Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. You know, never in my wildest dreams, 37 years ago, could I have ever imagined doing the things that I do now in serving Jesus and traveling all over the world and sharing my testimony, seeing many come to Jesus. It's just, I just don't know of a more satisfying life. There's something happens, there's nothing more, I think, satisfying that when your life gets to line up with his purpose, with his plan. So if I can just encourage you with a quick verse of scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for success. An expected end. So God has great expectations for you and I. Which it may not feel like it. You know, we haven't got a clue how he he does it, but he does it. And his word says he does it, and his word is true, so we can trust his, his word. How I many know you can trust the word of God? You know? One of my favorite scriptures, where I live these days, really, is this verse in, it's in Ephesians, I think it's 3.24, somewhere around there. He says that he does, he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above what you can ask or think. So for those of you that think, well, I got it all figured out, got a surprise for you. No, you don't. (laughs) I don't mean that in any kind of arrogance or anything like that. It's just just that many of us uh, subscribe to the old Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way, and it just don't work. It just doesn't work. His way is the best way. Because he has our best interests at heart. So uh, it's my privilege to share my story with you. It's not really my testimony. It's, it's Jesus' testimony of how he grabbed hold of somebody like myself who really didn't have a clue. So I call it Journey to Mount Everest because I was one of those guys that made it to the top of my field as a professional musician. And, uh, you know, we live in this world where... We're told about, we're talking about you got to make it, you got to, you know, get it to the top, whatever, whatever making it is, you know. And so you get to the top of whatever field you're in. There's this whole thing about getting to the top. The only thing about getting to the top of Mount Everest is you find there's nothing there. There's nothing there, you can't breathe, and there's a trail of dead bodies frozen in the eyes of people who tried to make it up there before you. So, <laughs> and that's kind of like what my, my, my journey is. You know, when you, in fact, you know when you hear of a lot of celebrities who have meltdowns and stuff like that and they've got all this money and, you know, Britney Spears shaving her head and throwing things and losing her mind and all kinds of stuff, you know, is because she got to Mount Everest, she got to the top and found there was nothing there. And without Jesus, you can't, you can't handle it. That's why they have all these, all these meltdowns and things. I just look at it and go, oh, here's another one. Here we go. Jesus, get a hold of them. You know, amazing. So we're going to show you some pictures, which are in my book, actually. And, um, uh, and some of you, I know I've sold my book here, and 
The book's been around now for a few years and, and many people have come to Jesus through my book, which is a real honour and privilege. It's now been, um, this year was uh, translated into the Croatian language and it's now being made available in, as far as I know, four Balkan, Balkan countries, Croatia, Herzegovina and so on, Macedonia, etc., so I'll be going over there next year to do some do some evangelism over there. So it's just uh, it's above what you can ask or think. Now I don't speak a lick of Croatian. Let me tell you, <laughs> I need every help I can get. You know, but God's had me travel all over the world, uh, sharing the gospel through translators, and um, it's just been an amazing journey over these last thirty-seven years. Now, you know, I was telling the guys about the um, you remember the tsunami in Japan few years ago, uh, in 2011, I believe, um, and the, the town of Fukushima, where they had the radioactive thing, you know, it all went, I was there. I should be glowing right now, like green, you know, but uh, had an amazing time there and led a bunch of people to Christ over there. We had a revival in Fukushima where nobody was allowed into the city because it was all shut down because of the radioactivity. But there was a pastor from the, 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 the hosting church that I was working with who had planted a church there. So he was allowed to get us in because he was running a school there, a Christian school there. It's amazing, you know, and all the Buddhist families would send their children to the Christian school because they knew that at the Christian school they were going to be taken care of. How about that? God does exceedingly above what we can ask or think. And we showed up there, preached the gospel and and... A whole bunch of, well, 42, actually, one night we were there, 42 Shinto Buddhist adults came to Christ. Just amazing, just amazing. So it's, it's just great. Well, this cute little young man here, this cute fella, age 10 years old with my dad. I was born into the music business, music industry. It's five generations of musicians on my parents' side, on my father's side. So that's where the gift comes from. And uh, just like any young boy, I wanted to be like my father because I grew up listening to all this music, a lot of jazz and blues, you know, and flat five chords were my wallpaper. That means nothing to anybody who's not a musician here, but, uh, but that's the truth, you know, those kind of chords and that kind of music. And, and my dad was actually a very famous musician in Europe, in England and Europe, during his day with the big band era, during the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And he was great friends with some of the greatest jazz musicians of that era. They would come to our house when they were on tour in England because my dad was a good cook. And musicians like to eat. You've got to eat when you're on tour. So we had the likes of, you know, Duke Ellington, Charlie Parker, Django Reinhardt, Ella Fitzgerald, Dizzy Gillespie bounced me on his knee when I was four years old, you know. And there were, there were these amazing jam sessions that were going on in the house, you know, after they'd had their dinner, you know. And, um, and, and I'm this little kid sat there and listened, oh, yeah, oh, I want to do this, you know, this is what's happening, you know, oh, yeah. So, so I wanted to be like my father. That picture was taken at 10 years old. At age 12, my father left us. 
My father had a terrible drinking problem and he created hell in our house. And so after age 12, he split from us. He, he bought me a guitar after three years of begging him to buy me a guitar. Showed me how to tune it up, gave it back to me and said, you're on your own now. And he split. I hated my father for 33 years of my life. Hated the man. My mother spent two years in a mental institution. She had a breakdown, trying to raise three kids and doing three jobs and everything. And me and my elder sister, we used to go and do concerts at the mental institution where my mum was. We did that for two years. It's a terrible time. I hated my dad. Absolutely hated him for what he did to our family. And so go on to the next uh, one, if you will, age 22. And I dropped out of school when I was 15 years old and went to work for the Beatles Music Publishing Company. And I was just going to, you know, become a professional musician and make it in the music business. So age 22, um, gosh, you know, Bernie had mentioned, you know, I, I got Elton John, who was then Reg Dwight, signed to Dick James Music. I was his first producer. I had a career when I was... 16, 17, I was playing on hit records and I was the A&R guy for Dick James's brand new record label. It was called This Music, This Productions, you know. And so people had to come and audition for me and Reg Dwight was one of them when I was 16 years. We met when I was 15 and he was 16. Amazing story. This is all in my movie. So if you've seen The Rocket Man, it's a fantasy, schmanacy, it's completely wrong. There you go. I'm the guy that helped him change his name. Because we had a, we, we produced a single and it was about to be released, but we needed to change the name. So I said to him, we can't put it out as Reg Dwight. They're going to think you're riding a bike or something, you know. We need to change the name. So he said, well, you know, we were coming back from, we were in a bus, an airport shuttle bus. We'd come back from Scotland doing a gig with this band Bluesology that we were in at the time. And there were two guys in there. There was John, Long John Baldry, and then there was a sax player called Elton Dean. And he's scribbling down names on a, on a notepad because we were pressed for time. And he said, well, he said, I like John's name. And he says, I like Elton's name. So what do you think of this? John Elton. And I said, Nah, let's go Elton John. And the rest, as they say, is history. That's the truth. That's the truth. <laughs> That's amazing. This is from two teenage kids who just dreamed together. You know, all these songs and stuff came out. And, uh, you know, one of the albums, the one that we showed earlier on, is now in the um, Grammy Museum. And it was uh, inducted into the Grammy Museum in 2014. Uh, they considered it to be among 20, 24 uh, what they considered to be the most iconic recordings of the 20th century. So yours truly is in the history books. Music history. Who would have thought? But, uh, I'm, and I'm very proud of my, my contribution to, to that body of work, you know, because it stood the test of time. It'll go down in history, those songs, you know. And now I live a great life. I go shopping. I'm in the supermarket. 
grabbing some potatoes, and I hear tiny dancer, ka-ching, <laughs> royalty. I hear, you know, wild thing, ah, ka-ching, you know. I hear, you know, I'll have some tomatoes, please, and I, I hear, take me to the pilot. We had no idea who the pilot was, but we figured if we smoked enough dope, we were going to run into him one day, you know. Ka-ching, you know. <laughs> so this is, the, this is the blessed life I live these days. It's really, it's really amazing. Because you get royalties on these, these things, these performances, you know. The things I played on and things that I also co-wrote with him, you know. There's actually a song I co-wrote with him that's in the Rocket Man movie, you know. So I can't be too critical about it, otherwise I rob myself of a blessing. How about that? <laughs> too funny. So let's go on to the let's go on to the next one. This is my band Hookfoot, a very influential band back then. And if you're familiar with the Tumbleweed Connection album, that's the rhythm section that's on there. And so we used to do a lot of studio work. And so I was always my life for about Gosh, for about 15 years, I was either in the studio or on the road. I was a, what you call a, a, an A-list studio player, session player. And a session was three hours, and I was working three to four sessions a day, seven days a week, as well as going out doing gigs as well. You go, how did you do that? Well, I was young. <laughs> Really, let's go to the next uh, one thing. Oh, look at that. What an athlete on stage, you know. I look at that and look at the legs going and I go, in my mind, I'm going, yeah, I remember. Well, let's try and do it. But my body says, oh, no, those days are over, you know. We're done moving like that. Boy, oh, boy. <laughs> let's go to the next one, if we could. Ace 26, you've really made it now. This is Wembley Stadium. With Elton, this is the first, uh, actually the first rock concert that they held at Wembley Stadium in England, which was a big deal to us growing up in England, because that was like the big soccer stadium. You know, we had our names on the, on the scoreboard and everything, and that's 100,000 people were there. And, uh, and all my friends, you know, in the music industry and stuff, oh, Caleb, you've really made it now. I kept hearing that. You've really made it now. And I didn't really feel like I'd made anything. Because all during this time, even though I'd become successful, we're at the top of the tree, I still had this hole in my soul because I hated my father. And that kind of thing just distorts everything. It just distorts your reality. And nothing could fix it. No amount of money, fame, adulation, sex, drugs, rock and roll, nothing could fix that hole in my soul. You know, these were fun times. I'd be lying to you if I said they weren't. They were fun times. They were amazing times. But they were also empty and dark times as well. Yeah. Let's go to the next uh, one. Oh, this is Dodger Stadium, 1975. That was another historic gig. It's myself and my good friend, Davey Johnson. And uh, we were doing these the years. We, the, during these years, Elton was the biggest thing on the planet. And so we would do playing stadiums every day, doing a four-hour show every day. That's Dodger State. We go to the next one. Oh, yeah, that, look at those pants. Don't you like those pants? <laughs> See, we wore our clothes back then, not like some of these guys today with their butt hanging out the rear end and all this kind of... 
No, 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 sir. We, we wore our clothes back then. Stepping in style, snakeskin boots. Oh, yeah. Fashion item. I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, yeah. And let's go to the next one. That's the Rock of the Westies album. You may have heard of the song called Island Girl. That was a big hit back then, you know. So what's in your wallet? You don't want to know what's in that wallet. That was an illegal wallet right there. Okay, moving right along. This is Madison Square Garden, 1976. We were the first band to sell out Madison Square Garden for seven days straight, doing a four-hour show every night. Yeah, we needed drugs. We were young, and we needed all the help we could get. Four hours a night, this is madness right here. Yeah. Playing stadiums every night. Sometimes the crowd was so loud, we couldn't hear ourselves. I'd be standing next to the bass player, screaming at him, what song are we doing next? <laughs> you know. Amazing time. Just surreal. So far removed from normal, you can't imagine. And the next one. Yeah, that's the same Madison Square Garden. That's the finale of one of the songs there. Crazy time. Next, please. Ah, I have to honor my wife. As I said, these pictures are from, the, from my book. They're in the book. And my wife says this is the best picture. And I agree with her. Okay, that's my lovely wife, Lydia. Okay, so and if you go on to the next one, it's just some information. If you're interested in getting the book, um, you can get a hard copy for, through Amazon.com or you can get an e-book on the Kindle, whatever thing, from um, Barnes & Noble. And uh, so, yeah, and we've also made a movie now that's based on the book. That's the movie that's going to be coming out very soon. We're actually in negotiations with it distribution company right now, so you'd be able to get it on Netflix, Hulu, and Lulu, and <laughs> anybody else, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, so this is, this is where we're at right now. So the question is, how does somebody that's had it all like that from that kind of a world, been there, you, you know, the old saying, you know, been there, got the T-shirt, you know, well, we help make the T-shirt, you know. We're getting that old now. But uh, how does somebody come out of that life? How do you meet Jesus? Well, the book uh, is titled A Voice Louder Than Rock and Roll. We shortened the title for the movie, uh, Louder Than Rock. And it's based on, really, inspired by the story of Elijah. And uh, if you remember the story of Elijah, Elijah's running away from God and, and from Ahab and, and Jezebel and all this craziness, and he's in a cave. And... Um, all of a sudden, there's an earthquake, and that doesn't phase him. And then the wind starts, there's like a whirlwind, and the rocks are cracking up, you know, this is this violent storm going on, and that doesn't, that doesn't phase him. But then the Bible says, all of a sudden, then he heard the still, small voice of God, and that shook him to attention. And it's funny how God is able to speak to us in a still, small voice that in its own miraculous way can be so audible, it will be louder than any noise that the world can, can make. The still, small voice of God is louder than any rocket taking off from Vandenberg. 
You, you follow what I'm saying? The still small voice of God can stop your world. And I, my prayer is that in the next few minutes or so, and maybe it's already begun, the still small voice of God will get your attention today. One thing I came to learn about the still small voice of God is that you, once you've heard it, you cannot unhear it. You know, Elijah had heard God's voice, God's voice and he tried to run and hide, but he couldn't. You cannot shake the voice of God. So for me, it began in uh, uh, 1978 on my 30th birthday. Uh, now, in rock and roll, 30 is a weird age you're supposed to die. You know, I knew the guys that wrote the songs about this. You know, so, so between 27 and 30, you're in rock and roll, you're supposed to be done. So... Um, I was playing with uh, Hall & Oates. I was on tour with a band called Hall & Oates. You all heard of Hall & Oates, all right? Okay, you're a rich man and Sarah's smile and all this stuff, you know. So I was on tour with them and uh, on my birthday, we were in Atlanta, Georgia, play, doing a, a concert at the Omni Theater. And we're staying in the adjacent hotel, the Omni Hotel. So when we'd done the show, go back to the hotel and Daryl Hall leads the charge and all of a sudden, the band and the road crew come barging into my room with this huge birthday cake, and it was the most illegal cake you've ever seen in your life. It was just filled with all kind of stuff. So we partied on through the night. It was on my 30th birthday. And about 5 o'clock in the morning, everybody crawled out of my room, and I'm sat in a chair with my back to the window on the ninth floor of this hotel. We'd been in the, on the road for six months, you know, we're in the middle of these long tours. So here I am. And all of a sudden, I hear a voice. It was so loud to me, I thought somebody had walked into my room. I looked around, the door shut, there's nobody there. And as I'm sat in this seat, this voice speaks to me and says, Caleb? Called me by my name. Caleb, from this point on, your life is going to be completely different and nothing's going to be the same for you ever again. In an instant, I am no longer high on the drugs and everything. I am stone cold sober and I'm sitting in what I can only describe as an electric silence. All I knew was, in my limited understanding of things, all I knew was that I had been spoken to, I just didn't know by whom. So I sat there in this chair and I made a little promise to myself. I just said, one day I'm going to find out who that voice belonged to. Okay? The next day we pack up our bags, we're back on the road, you know, back on the tour. And, you know, as I said, in, in rock and roll of 30 you're supposed to die, and word had gone out through the music industry that Caleb Quay had just turned 30. And I would bump into some musician friends of mine. I remember bumping into Brian May of Queen in Chicago at O'Hare Airport. We crossed our paths. We'd known each other for a while. <laughs> Brian says to me, hey, man, I just heard you just turned 30. What happened? Like as if I'm supposed to suddenly keel over and die right now, you know. 
So I told him the same story I just told you. And the response was kind of interesting. It was along the lines of, wow, that's great. What were you smoking? Where can we get some? (laughs) Who's the dealer? Can you hook a brother up? You know. And I would say, no, you don't understand. This was a real, I really heard this. This was a real voice, you know. And they just thought I was crazy, you know. But I couldn't shake what I had heard. I just didn't know who it was. So this carried on for a period of time. A few years passed. When, when, when we came, I came home from that tour, we finished with that band. That band disbanded. And from that point on, just as that word was spoken, everything started to change. My life just unraveled. In a nutshell, basically everything that could go wrong in my life, it went wrong. Marriage broke up, bankruptcy, I mean, I thought I was going to go continue my studio work in in Los Angeles that I'd been doing. You know, all of a sudden, the phone's not ringing anymore, contacts, I mean, everything just dried up, you know. And I'm left, I'm selling guitars and equipment, selling drugs just to try and survive here. You know, and during this time, I met a guy, a world-famous musician, Chester Thompson, world-class drummer. Used to play with Genesis, Phil Collins, and um, prior to that, a very influential jazz band called Weather Report. So I met him on a project. I got invited to play on this project. We struck up a friendship, and he had just formed his own little jazz group, and he invited me to join his band. I thought, man, yeah, I'd love to play with this guy. This guy is really, this is very cool. Great. So he had a house with a little studio in there, and uh, we would go and rehearse during the day and everything, do some gigs and just working on, on this material, you know. During this time, he had told me that him and his wife were Christians. And I was like, as many people are, you know, well, that's good for you. You all familiar with that one? That's good for you. You know, you got your truth. I've got mine. I'll roll my little doobie up here. You do your church thing over there. We'll just be fine, you know. (laughs) Well, as I said, God has a plan for us, doesn't he? So here's how it went. We would rehearse at his home because there was something about him and his wife. They they didn't preach it. You have to know, they didn't preach to me. He let me know they were Christians, but there was no Bible thumping going on. He didn't preach to me. But there was a quality about his life that was very attractive to me. And I didn't say anything to him, but I used to think to myself, this guy, he's got something. There was a peace about him. He was at peace. And I couldn't figure out how, because we're the same age and we're in the same line of work, and how come this guy, he was in the same business, but he's not out of his mind like everybody else that we know. And he's able to keep it together. He's very peaceful, very calm. And he's got this stability, this solidity about his life. And I used to think to myself, this guy's got something. Whatever it is, I want it. I need it. Didn't say that to him. These were my own thoughts, right? So we'd do this rehearsal at his house. At the end of the day, his wife would cook us this fabulous meal, which we joke about to this day. We call it the anointed African stew. Oh, yeah. 
At the end of the rehearsal, we'd sit at this table. His wife, Roz, she'd sit there. Chester would sit there right opposite from me. She put this bowl of this stew there. I would devour this food with great joy, just like we've done at the men's retreat this weekend. Just like, mm, mm, mm. really great. And she would wait until I'd finished, put my knife and fork down, and then she would instantly ask me a very straightforward, logical question. And she would say, well, Caleb, why don't you go ahead and just tell us what exactly is it that you believe? Okay, I'll give it a shot. So I started, I'd launch into this, it turned out to be like a 40-minute monologue that began, <laughs> it's a monologue of rubbish, <laughs> that began somewhere around Star Trek <laughs> and the Force Be With You, and it kind of went into astrology, rabbit's feet, uh, medicine men, shaman, and, and all kind of, Eastern religion, gurus, the Maharaj, blah, diddy, blah, 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 all the way around the whole New Age potpourri stupor, right? I love the laughter of identification that's already happening in here, you know. And we go all around this, and Chester, my friend, very patient guy, no Bible thumping or nothing, very patient guy. He would just sit there in his T-shirt with his arms folded, waiting patiently till I ran out of gas, right? <laughs> sure enough, I ran out of gas. But when I ran out of gas, he would look at me and he would just say, yeah, man, I know what you mean, man. You just need Jesus. <laughs> when he said that, I didn't say it to him. I was boiling mad. I was infuriated because I thought, you know what? I speak pretty good English. I'm a good communicator. I thought I did a pretty good job at communicating this stuff. How in the world can he boil it all down to one name? That's what hit me. Where would you get that from? How in the world can you? I mean, I've read the books. I've got, like spent money on this junk, you know. How can you boil it all down to one name? What was worse was I had to go home and get some sleep because we were going to rehearse the next day. So I go to my place, I lay on the bed, my eyeballs are wide open, there ain't no sleep happening. All I've got in my mind is these four words, you just need Jesus, banging on my chest, rattling around inside of me like ball bearings in a tin can. This boy did not get any sleep. Then I get up the next day and I stagger into the studio to rehearse, you know. Now, how many of you have seen or heard of the movie Groundhog Day? <laughs> this conversation I've just told you repeated itself every day for a week. You know, Psalm 2 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. So here I, you know, go to Chester's, do the rehearsal, have the stew, ask the question, hit the monologue, run out of gas, you just need Jesus, go home, lie on the bed, eyeballs wide open, 
You just need Jesus, no sleep, get up next day, stagger into the studio, do the rehearsal, have the stew, ask the question, hit the monologue, run out of gas, you need Jesus, go home, lying every day for a week. There's something, huh? And on the last day, which happened to be at the, you know, the end of that week, it happened to be a Sunday. It just happened to be Easter Day, 1972. 1982, I'm sorry. Chester calls me up. Now, I am thoroughly worn out by this time. I'm no good for anybody, you know. He calls me up. He says, hey, man, he says, uh, what are you doing today? I said, oh, not much at all. He says, why don't you come to church with us today? It's Easter. And I'm on the phone and I'm doing this because it wasn't a smartphone. It was one of the old analog steam phones, you know, heavyweight thing. You can knock people out with these phones, you know. <laughs> with this phone here, I'm on the phone. I hear these words and it was like all of a sudden the world stopped. And I thought to myself, you know, I've tried everything else. Because I was looking for answers. I was looking for answers. I had questions about this life. You know, I was looking for answers. I was trying to fix this hole in my soul. And I said to myself, you know, I've tried everything else. Why not church? So I told Chester, I said, okay, I'll come to church with you. And I can hear him on the other end of the phone with his wife going, yes, he's coming, you know. I said, okay, yeah, I'll come to church with you. So he takes me to this church, which was uh, the Church on the Way in Van Nuys, Pastor Jack Hayford, which was then a brand new, well, a brand new facility that they'd built, and they were having their first Easter service um, in their brand new facility. Now, I was raised in church in England. I went to church in England, sang in a church choir. I enjoyed singing in the church choir, but I had never heard the gospel. I never heard nothing about you could actually have a relationship with this God who created you. All I heard was about was you're a sinner, you know, and, and there was no joy at all. I heard you, you heard your pastor today talk about the joy is the, the Lord is our strength. There were no strength in this church. There was just a droning organ. Everybody was miserable. Their faces were pickled in religion. This church was old. It was built in the 12th century. We had the original cobwebs and stained glass windows. Everything about it was old. And I was a young choir boy and we just used to laugh. All these old people, everybody, everything was just old. The music was old. It was all like, you know, crazy. There was no joy at all, you know. And I was kind of taught God was so busy in the administration of the universe, he had no time for the likes of you. You know, there was no gospel. It was amazing. So first impressions are everything, right? Chester takes me to this church on the way. We walk in like the foyer area like you got out here, and it was packed with people. And they're doing this thing called fellowship. Just like you guys, they're hugging each other and, hey, how are you doing in there? Everybody's smiling, laughing. And there's all this hubbub, all this joyful noise going on out there. My first impression, I thought, there's no way this place can be a church because these people are happy. <laughs> That's what I thought. 
So then we walk through the doors, just like you got here into the sanctuary, you know. We walk in, the first thing I see is Alex Acuna's drum set and a bunch of guitars and instruments and some guy who would be about there sat behind this big uh, Yamaha uh, mixing console, sound console, you know. I thought, there's no way, this is a church. Then I thought, okay, Chester's doing a number on me here. I thought, this is not a church, this is a surprise gig. I thought, in any minute now, I know what's going to happen. The Grateful Dead are going to come out and blow us all away. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what's going down. I got it. Okay, I'm ready for you, you know. <laughs> so we sit down, we take a seat, and then they start the worship time. Now, when I grew up, I was used to the old hymns, the dusty old hymns. You know, I hadn't heard that in years, you know. So to me, that was church. Now they're, they're singing what was called the modern or contemporary choruses, you know. One of them was this very short uh, song that just kept repeating over and over. It's called, In My Life, Lord Be Glorified. Are you familiar with that? Very lovely, simple tune, you know. So they start singing it, and of course, being a musician, I'm analyzing the chord changes and, and you know, digging on the melody. That's nice. But something weird happened. I wasn't hearing the whole lyric. You know, something was going on. To me, I only heard one word in the song. Now, if you know the song, it goes, In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today, right? I heard it like this. Today. And it kept repeating, just like that, you know. I go, come around to today, I'm thinking, what in the world is up with today? This is a different kind of today than any other kind of today I've ever experienced before today. What is going on here? Where has Chester taken me? And I didn't know anything about Foursquare Church or Charismatic or Pentecostal. And they keep singing this song and, and this one-word tune. And in the middle of this crazy one-word tune, people start lifting their hands. Woo! What is this? And hands are going up over here, and the tune is going here today. And hands are going up over here today. And I'm thinking, what? Where has Chester taken me? What is this crazy place? And then all of a sudden, I got the revelation. Oh, I know what's going on. They're playing some kind of spiritual basketball, and somebody over here is trying to throw the ball. Somebody over here is trying to catch the ball. And if somebody can just tell me what the score is, I can go home and get well and get a good night's sleep. How about that? Today. While this crazy one-word worship tune is going down, I'm sat in this chair in the same voice that I'd heard back in the hotel room which was by then like almost four years ago, that I could not shake, that I promised myself one day I'd find out who that voice belonged to. That same voice speaks to me right there and says these words, Caleb, it's time for you to come home to me today because I have a brand new life for you. 
Then the light bulb went on. Then I realized this is Jesus. These people are not crazy. They're singing to Jesus. They're worshiping Jesus. And Jesus has found me. Jesus has been on my tail all this time. He came and found me. I wasn't looking for him. I'd describe it as Jesus just gate crashed my party back in the hotel. You know. Pastor Jack comes out, starts to launch into his Easter sermon. I'm sitting there, I feel like something's exploded inside of me, and I'm in I'm in I'm bathed in this peace that I've never ever known before in my life. The Bible talks about a peace that passes understanding. It had hit me in full force, and I'm just sat there transfixed. And Pastor Jack is ripping into his sermon. Pastor Jack's a very gifted speaker, and he uses like $500 words. I didn't understand a word the man said. But at the same time, there was this weird thing going on with the spirit because it seemed to me, I'm going, who is this guy in a brown suit that's telling my story to everybody? When you think about it, the story of Easter is everybody's story because Christ rose from the dead for everybody. So it seemed like he was telling my story to everyone. What is going on here? And the next thing I know is he comes to the end of his message and he gives the invitation. And he simply said, is there anybody here today that would like to receive Jesus as their Savior and their Lord? The next thing I know, I'm up out of my chair, my hands up in the air like this. I'm looking at my hand up there. I'm looking down here. I'm going, how in the world did I get up here? And the next thing I know, I'm down at the front by the, by the altar there, you know, and they've led me out to a prayer room to say some prayer with a pastor. I don't know what I prayed. All I said was, yes, whatever's going on, I'm, I'm in. It's yes, yes. I've never felt a peace like this before. Jesus, yes, yes. You know what I found? Saying yes to Jesus is the most important, yet it's the smartest, most important thing a human being can say is to say yes to Jesus. <laughs> radical. It's radical. And then I had to go home. I was still doing drugs. I'd said yes to Jesus. I had to go home. Chester, who was my connection to the church, he'd left, gone back on the road with Genesis. And I'm back in this darkness again. And I came to a point where I was laid out on a bed, on my bed that should have been my deathbed. I got terribly, terribly sick from all of this, and my nervous system gave out. I was just shaking from head to toe, out of control. And I knew if I didn't get out of this, I was going to die. I just knew it. And I was laid in my bed. The windows were open. It was a bright Southern California, sunny springtime day. My eyeballs were wide open, and in a second, I was instantly blind. I couldn't see a thing. It was pitch, pitch black. The only thing I saw was some flames off in the distance. And I knew that was hell down there. And I felt myself being drawn towards it. And I started to panic because I didn't want to die. And so I cried out to God. And I cried out a crazy prayer to God. Can I tell you something? 
God is real interested in crazy prayers. He's not interested in the smooth-talking, spiritual fluff stuff. He's interested in authentic desperation where you've come to that crossroads and you go, I either go to God or I'm done for. And that's where I was at. And I didn't want to be done for. So the first thing I did, and I came to find out later on, it's called repentance. But I said to God, I said, God, I'm sorry. And by this time, I had not, my Christianese was not yet developed. You know, Christ, you know, God loves prayers that don't have a bunch of Christianese in them. Just honest from the gut, from your heart, authentic. You know, he's not bothered about the syntax you know, or the, you know, correct language and all that kind of stuff, he looks at the heart. I said to him, God, I am sorry that I became something that you never, ever intended me to become. And here's the crazy, the crazy prayer. I said, because I'd forgot what had happened back at the church on Easter Day. I said, if you would just help me to turn this page in my book, and just give me Jesus, I will give you the rest of my life. That was 37 years ago, and we've been going strong ever since. So in that, yeah, yeah. Right at that moment, in an instant, the same voice speaks to me. It says, Caleb, go get yourself baptized today. I'm thinking, great, okay. Uh, how do I do that? You know, what? Okay, so I thought, you know, well, let me call Chester. He was my only connection to the church. Look at God. Chester had been out on the road with Genesis. He had just got back home the night before. I had no clue. I called him up just in desperate. Ch hey, man, how you doing? Oh, great. Well, I'm a mess, and uh, all I know is I need to get baptized. Can you help me? Well, he started getting excited on the phone. He said, do you know what day it is today? I said, well, I think it's Sunday. He said, it's Pentecost Sunday. Those two days in the calendar year, every time they come around, are very important to me. Because Easter day was the day I said yes. Pentecost Sunday was the day I got set free and got radically born again the moment I got baptized. So Chester, he's getting excited on the phone. I'm a mess, and he now wants to give me a Bible study down the phone because I said, Pentecost, what's that? He starts, well, the birth of the church, you know, the outpouring of the Spirit and all that. I said, it sounds good, but all I know is, man, I need to get my body in the water. Can you help me? That's all I got. That's all I got, you know. <laughs> he said, okay, great. Me and my wife will come pick you up. We'll take you to the church. So he takes me to the church, right? And they got a, a service going in the evening. <laughs> I sat in a baptism class. They gave me some instruction. I wasn't ready for instruction. I just wanted to get in the water that's all i got get in the water you know i think i come to find out it's called radical obedience you know when god says something you know it's going to be good just do it you know he'll take care of the other stuff you know 
<laughs> so, you know, honestly, there were 13 of us. I was at the back of the line in my white robe, you know, waiting, waiting to get in there. So they start, the worship finishes up, you know. So then they start getting into the water. And I don't know why it is, but the baptism services, it's like everything seems to go in slow motion. Have you noticed? People get real slow and they go tippy, tippy toe into the water and they get down like this and dinky, dinky, dink. You know, I'd had it. I pushed myself to the front of this line and I dived in head first, <laughs> did one of them. One of the pastors is in the, in the pool and he grabs me by the throat as I'm coming over someone's head. Boom, puts me down in there. He's shaking it about. You know, it's okay, son. Don't worry, we'll get it all out. You know, it's one of these deals, you know. And, and here's the kicker, and it's the honest truth. I went in the water, an 18-year drug, drug addict, with a messed up mind. When they pulled me out, Brand new. New mind. With a revelation so bright in my spirit. And this was it. This was the revelation. God knew me and had accepted me as one of his own. End of story. 18 years of drugs completely wiped out. I should have gone to, you know, you had a rehab and a 12-step. I, I was a candidate for 48 steps plus. Really? But I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to do that. God filled with the Spirit, talking this funny language. You're like, woohoo! Beautiful. Scat singing to God. Brand new. See, one of my favorite scriptures is, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, is a new creature. The old things passed away, and all things become new. All things become new. I remember my past, as I've showed you with the pictures and stuff, but they're not important anymore. What's important is coming to Jesus, who makes so much difference, who enabled me to later on in 1994 be reconciled with my father, who I hated for so long. And that began with coming to forgive him, Right before I got married to my dear wife in 1984, I didn't share this in previous services, but I think we've got a little bit of time here. I can do this. Because the issue of forgiveness is so important to me because I've seen how it works. What really set me free, the, the, the baptism, the baptism set me free from the drugs. But forgiveness set me free from the bondage of hatred that had me bound up all of my life. The most important thing, and I think, you know, some scholars may differ, but I think the most central message of the cross is when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And God brought me to realize that only he, my heavenly father, has the big say, the final say on my life. And that my biological father, even though he had made intentional decisions to try and destroy our family, 
such as putting us in all in the family car in a drunken rage and proceeding to drive through the city with his foot on the accelerator and go through every stoplight in town hoping that a truck or something would collide into our car and wipe out the family. That's how out of his mind he was. You know, I remember my father throwing my grandmother down a flight of stairs in the house that we lived when I was four years old. And I was at the bottom of the stairs hearing all this argument. And then all of a sudden I see him hit her and throw her. She comes tumbling down the stairs. You know, this is the kind of damage I carried for all these years. I wanted to kill my father. I hated him. But how do you get out of that? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And God showed me that my dad, even though he'd made intentional decisions to do this kind of stuff, he was working out of his own damage that none of us knew anything about. And my father actually confessed to me later on, after I led him to Christ, what his damage was from his stepfather that abused him. Forgiveness. It's the only way. There is no other way. It's the genius of God. If you're going to keep somebody in prison, you've got to feed them. You've got to feed the prisoner. If you want to cut that off, get rid of the prisoner, don't feed him. But how can I stop feeding him if I've got all this junk inside of me? You look to Jesus, who became a curse for us on Calvary's cross. He bore the curse of every abuse, abandonment, you name it. He is our high priest who is acquainted with everything that we've been dealt with, and he nailed it to the cross. You've got to go to the cross and see what was accomplished. I spoke to the men this weekend about the perfect accomplishment of the cross it's radical and it is so freeing and life-giving and the resurrection testifies that every word Jesus spoke was true and everything he accomplished upon the cross was complete can't add nothing to it you can't take anything away and I was in a prayer service in a pre-marriage class just before me and my wife got married and the issue of forgiveness came up. And this is what the pastor said. He said, you know, there's some things, some good things from your past that you want to take into your marriage. But there's some really bad stuff from your past. You don't want to take that into your marriage. And what you need to do is forgive those who have harmed you. Forgive those who are angry at you. Oh, it got quiet in there just like it's quiet right now. And I could feel the finger of God just in my chest saying to me, this is your time. Let go of your dad. Hand him over to me. And that's when I got that revelation that he didn't know what he was doing. I had to forgive him because Jesus forgave me when I didn't know what in the world I was doing. You see, Jesus is our way. So, and here's what happened. <laughs> he said, okay, the class is finished. You've got 20 minutes. We're going to get on our knees 
And, you know, some of you have been taught that, you know, time heals all wounds, you know, just, just you know, hide it under the carpet. And some of you have forgotten some things that have happened to you. He says, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you remember. And so I did. I just obeyed what the pastor said. I got on my knees. I said, God, I can, I can remember some things, but help me to remember the things I've forgotten. And sure enough, my mind started to get flooded with all kinds of horrendous stuff. And all I, my response was, Father, forgive him. I forgive my dad. I said, I choose to forgive my dad right now. I'm handing him over to you, Jesus. I went through all that. I got up off my feet, and it was like, for the first time in my life, it was like a 100-pound weight had been taken off my shoulders. I felt like internally I could breathe in a way I've never been able to breathe. I was able to forgive my dad. I wrote my dad a letter. I told him I'd forgiven him. This was in 1984. I found out he lived in Amsterdam. The clock, Ryan the clock forward, 1994. My dad calls me up. By this time, I'm a pastor on staff at the, in, in uh, Pasadena Foursquare Church. The secretary calls into my office. She says, there's somebody on the phone from Amsterdam for you. I said, oh, okay. And I'm thinking, I don't know any church people in Amsterdam. I said, I'll take the call. It's my dad, who we used to call the monster, on the phone. I said, oh, how are you doing? What's, you know, what's this about? He says, well, he says, uh, and it's funny, my dad, even though he was crazy, he had a sense of humor. He says, well, I got your letter, like as if he got it last week. It was 10 years ago. <laughs> he said, I got your letter. He says, I know what you're doing. And he says, I'm, I'm calling you to ask you for a favor. And I'm thinking, the monster, the monster is asking me for a favor. What's going on here? You know, I said, okay, what's up? What can I do? He says, well, he says, I've got cancer. And I thought I'd call you to ask you for your advice. The monster's asking me for my advice. And right then the Holy Spirit just filled my little office and said, tell him now. And that's when I led him to Jesus. Took him through Romans 10. I said, do you by any chance have a Bible? He says, yes, I do. I thought, wow. The mon this madman has a Bible. What in the world is going on? Little did I know a chaplain had been ministering to him in the hospital in Amsterdam. He gave him a little Bible. So I led, led him through Romans 10. If you confess with your heart, blah, blah, blah. You know, and he received Jesus. We're both weeping on the phone, both crying on the phone. I can't believe what's going down here. My dad's just received Jesus. He said, um, I'm going to go and have uh, some x-rays done and um, I'll call you back and let you know, you know how it goes. You know. So I said, I'll have the church pray. So the church got to pray. He called me back the following week. He says, got good news. The doctors looked at the x-rays. They said, Mr. Quay, something's going on here. The cancer stopped spreading, and I think we can get it out with, with, with surgery. So they opted for surgery. They got it out with surgery. My dad gets back to me after he's recovered from the surgery. I need to come speak with you. Okay, I said, but, you know, everything's fine. I mean, all is forgiven, you know. He said, no, I need to come <laughs> And clean the slate with you, was his words. I said, okay. So he comes over, spent a month with us in 1994. And he had all kinds of questions about the church, religion, God, etc., etc. 
I was able to answer his questions. We went through Bible studies. We would sit up to three o'clock in the morning and he's telling me about his damage when he grew up. He's telling me stuff I never knew. He's filling in holes on me. See, the reason I'm saying this is because God, his plans for you is he, wa he wants to put icing on the cake for you. If I'd never seen my dad ever again, I would have been okay because me and Jesus were doing just fine. But I guess God said, you know what? I, want, I, I just want to bless you in a way that you couldn't even ask or think. You're going to lead your dad to the Lord. And after we had these, these discussions and everything, you know, I asked my dad, I said, would you like to get baptized? He said, yes, I would. So in 1994, I got to baptize him at Pasadena Four Square Church. Unbelievable. Got to baptize the monster. Yeah, and God allowed him to live for six more years before he took him home in the year 2000. I say this to you, and I wasn't planning on sharing all, all, all this, so I just have to believe that, that, that God is moving in some hearts, you know. In fact, I was, I'm not going to, I can't even see him, but I was talking to one of the men at the men's meeting. He approached me during a coffee break. And if you're here, you know who you are. But he said to me that he was finding it very difficult to forgive his father. And I said, hopefully you're going to be here to hear this message because I'm going to talk about it. It's also in my movie as well. The father-son dynamic is so important in our culture especially the way it's been ripped apart. You know. But Jesus, you know, like I said, God so loved us, he didn't send an attorney. He didn't send a negotiator. He sent his son to repair all these relational issues in our hearts. He's the only one that can repair that kind of brokenness by taking it, by being broken himself on Calvary's cross and shedding his own sinless blood. And somehow during the mystery of the three days on the cross, it was no longer the blood of bulls and goats, but Jesus took his own sinless blood behind the veil into the original holy of holies in heaven and covered the mercy seat there. That's the deal. That's the deal. That's why I can say to you in all honesty, in all sincerity, based upon the authority of the word of God, that Jesus really has got you covered. He's got you covered. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.